Hey everybody, what's up? Happy to be in your ears today for another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. I hope you all look forward to the show. I I love it so much and it brings me so much joy and um, I do get a lot of energy and connection and enthusiasm and inspiration, motivation from reading y'all's comments out there on the internet. So thank you for all that you do. In advance of this week's show, I want to say thank you so much for all of the love and um, in line with my mission and vision for the show, we are going to deliver a doozy today because our guest is Guy Raz. Now, if you're not familiar with Guy's work, I would be shocked since he has one of the top podcasts in the world and he's a journalist and he, if you put those two things together, top podcast, a journalist, and then his interests around building and creating things, what you get is the one of the most popular podcasts in the world called How I Built This. Um, he's also got a show on Spotify um, called Rewind, and he's the co-creator of the very acclaimed podcast TED Radio Hour, as well as some other children's programs, one in particular called Wow in the World. Um, as I mentioned, he's a journalist by trade and background. He's received the Edward R. Murrow Award, the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, the National Headliner Award, and the NABJ Award, among many others. Suffice to say, he is a legend in journalism, and he has moved that. You, you may have heard him on line uh, or on the radio, where he was the host of All Things Considered, that um, breakout NPR radio show. And of course, in true fashion, moved this to podcasting and has just crushed it. He has inspired me uh, in the world of audio, um, and he does a really good job. Most recently in a book that we get to talk about today by the same name as his podcast, How I Built This, where he has curated uh, some of the best, uh, most powerful and popular uh, advice from many of the world's top creators and entrepreneurs, <clears throat> not too dissimilar to this show. He's put it in a book form, so we cover a ton of ground in this from what he has learned through having conversations with many of the world's top creators and entrepreneurs to his own personal story, um, his, I would say, creative style, his creative approach, his process. Um, he is a legend in the space. I, I consider it a huge honor to have him on the show, and I know you are going to get a ton from him. In addition to all that stuff, he's just a really great guy, and I know you will love to hear him. His voice is soothing, much more soothing in mine, but I can't wait for you to get to the show. So I'm going to stop talking and let you enjoy this conversation with Guy Raz. Before we do, just a super quick word from Creative Live, and then we're going to get into it. Hey, y'all, hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close. And it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So of course, I'm biased, but I, I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close. And you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts. Okay, that's it, that's my soapbox. That is the commercial, and we'll hope to see you over Creative Live. Now, let's get back to the show. 
All right. We've got Guy Raz in the house. Guy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, you are no um, spring chicken when it comes to making uh, podcasts. I was just checking out, of course, How I Built This, which has uh, 26,000 some odd reviews. And we were talking right before we rolled live about this could be a blessing and a curse because uh, you, you are so popular that that so many people are taking a look at your stuff. Is does that have anything to do with you putting out a book? You wanted to try a new medium because you've mastered audio. Congrats <laughs> on the new book, by the way. What, what, um, tell us a little bit about it. Well, I mean, the book is really designed to to sort of look. I have access to all these incredible entrepreneurs, and I have access to them because you know we we have a, a large audience on our show, and 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 I I always think of the show as an opportunity for our listeners to to be able to get into the minds of these incredible people, whether it's Howard Schultz or Richard Branson or Sarah Blakely, you know, and because I've had this opportunity to sit down with more than 300 of these world changing entrepreneurs um, and really kind of interrogate their minds and their stories. um, I wanted to, you know, to make this available to anybody because really um, the book is designed for people who are thinking about starting something or are starting something or, or just want to be inspired by the stories of people who did. And, you know, I've read lots of business books over the course of my life, and many of them are excellent. But I wasn't looking to write a book about theory, you know, in an abstract way. I was looking to write a really practical book about what it means to start an enterprise or or, or to have an idea and to run with it. But I wanted to tell it through stories because I think stories um, stories are so relatable. And through those stories, um, we can gain an incredible amount of wisdom and knowledge and, and practical advice. Yeah, that's the journalist part of you probably, right? The, uh, the part that's um, research stories. And in case anyone was uh, wondering, Yes, he has received the Edward R. Murrow Award for Journalism, the Jan- Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, the National Headliner Award, the NABGJ Award, among others. Um, so do you feel like this was a research project or was it a packaging expert uh, um, endeavor? Because it's it's absolutely incredible. I, I'm holding up for those of you who are listening. You can't see this. I'm look. My book has like 80 dog pages of the 300. So I don't know how I'm going to get through all this with you, but um, is it, was it a different package that was interesting to you? I mean, this is a little bit about your creative process, right? I think about you yeah. as a, a journalist first and a, a person who has lived in my ears for years. Huh. Um, and, and so the book, the choice of a book I think is, is interesting. And I'm, that's where my curiosity lies. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, the, the process is pretty straightforward. You know, it's not that different from the process that I do for, for the show. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about who we want to bring on to how I built this. Similarly, I spent a lot of time on who I wanted to profile in the book because I can't profile all 300 of the people I've interviewed and I can't talk about every single part of everyone's story. Um, I do a lot of research before I interview somebody. So whether it's, you know, um, you know, Ron Shake, the founder of Panera, or Nancy Twine, the founder of Briogeo, or, you know, Joe Malone, the founder of Joe Malone. I mean, anybody I interview, I spend anywhere from 10 hours or more sometimes 
reading about them, um, really doing a deep dive into their lives. And that was, it was a similar process with the book. You know, some of the information comes from, of course, interviews that I have done that appeared on the show. My interviews on the show are about an hour, but I actually interview people for much, much longer than that. So a lot of that ends up on the cutting room floor. And there's a lot of wisdom and insight um, that comes from the cutting room floor in addition to, um, and just in addition to connecting the dots too. So, you know, for me, the process was, um, as I say, very similar to what, to the way I do the show, you know, which is um, really thinking intentionally about a person, about their story and about where their story fits in the continuum that I'm trying to sort of trace that continuum of a, of a journey. Cause the book is really designed as a journey from, you know, the very, very beginnings when you have the inkling of an idea all the way to, you know, whether you decide to exit or you decide to continue running it. Um, the book is designed to answer all of the questions in between. Well, of the people that you've named so far, um, or the people that have blurbed your book, Adam Grant, Angela Duckworth, Mark Cuban, Joe Jebbia, Reed Hoffman, Richard Branson, all of those people are either uh, dear friends of mine and or Creative Live um, on the Creative Live and have been on this show or investors in Creative Live. So there, in case anyone's out there out there is wondering, there's an insane crossover with the work that um, that guy has done and specifically packaged in this book. And I want to spend more time talking about the book and the journey that you talked about. I think it's beautifully laid out in, in three parts, but before we do in the, for the, for the one out of a hundred people who may be new to you or your work, I want to go way back before the book and before your journalism career and go back as a child. And okay. I was hoping to hear, hear a little bit about, um, drove you in the direction that you ultimately chose to pursue? Was it some sort of innate curiosity? Were you kept for something? Were you, were you expressly passionate about research, um, storytelling? Give us a little bit of insight on Guy the Kid. You know, I grew up in a, um, in a home where we were very engaged. We talked about the news. You know, from, from a very early age, I can remember, I mean, my Mom and dad got Time Magazine and Newsweek. We got the LA Times delivered to our house every day. We watched 60 Minutes as a family. We were always talking about the news. Um, and there was, my, my parents didn't hide the news from me. You know, the 80s were full of stories of terrorism and hijackings and, you know, the space shuttle Challenger explosion disaster. I mean, the current events and discussions about current events were really big in my home when I grew up. Um, my mom and dad were entrepreneurs. They started a small business selling jewelry when my dad was in his early 40s. So he, he pearls, a, is that right? Pearls. Is pearls? Yep. He yeah. left a safe, comfortable job to start to take a risk and to, to start this small business. Um, and, you know, as I got older, um, you know, up, you know, middle school and then high school, I fell into the, the, the newspaper. I loved I loved being a reporter. I, I loved the opportunity to go and talk to anybody, you know, whether it was the principal of the school or a student or cover an event. And, and what was nice about it and what I, what I really discovered was that for me, once you put a notepad in my hand, it was like, it was like a hall pass to, 
to a, a, a different world because I'm actually naturally shy. I am naturally introverted. I really do need to spend time alone and I'm not, I don't easily just meet people and introduce myself. I've never been that way. But when I had a notepad in my hand, I could talk to anybody. And it was sort of this, it was a way for me to kind of be a version of the person I wanted to be, which was the person that would go up to people and say, hi, I'm Guy, tell me a little bit about yourself um, without feeling awkward. And that was really that was really the beginning of it. I mean, I, I, I was the editor of my high school paper. I went to college. I, I did the paper. I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to tell human stories. I wanted to, I wanted to go overseas, which I eventually did. I, I wanted to do those things because for me, it was like a form of, it was like a form of therapy. You know, I was able to, to have the courage to talk to people simply because I had the notepad in my hand. Curious to hear how that courage evolved from the reporter in a sense behind the scenes or behind a byline to someone who's now a popular culture icon. I mean, you're hosting Ted, um, you've got, you know, one of the top podcasts in the world. You've been on the Tonight Show. I mean, this is a little <laughs> bit of a leap here. We're not necessarily following the linear arc, but is that uh, something you've gotten used to over time, or is it still a part of the business or the 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 job that um, pains you? How, how does uh, not Guy Ross the kid, but how, how are you re reconciling those two? The shyness with um, now being out in front of so many people. You know, I've learned to kind of rise to the occasion as as I become more and more well known. Um, I'm still, you know, lucky enough that the vast majority of people who listen to my show uh, or my shows don't know what I look like. They don't take the time to look. So um, it's it's not often when I'm out on the streets and somebody recognizes me. It does happen. Um, you know, it 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 uh, it happens more more often than I. You know, it surprises me every time it happens, but it probably happens, you know, in pre-COVID days, probably once a week. Um, but the thing is, is that everybody who does recognize me or does connect with me in some, in some way, they feel like they know me because the medium of audio is so intimate. You know, you're in somebody's head and usually they're doing something for them. They're running, exercising, maybe they're driving or they're commuting. Um, but, but most of the time when people listen to me, they're by themselves. And so we have this one-on-one -on -one relationship. It, 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 you know, there might be millions of people listening, but it really is a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And so when I meet people who recognize me or who, who want to connect with me, or, you know, when I am at a public event and, you know, people want to take photos, it's not actually, it's for me, it's, um, I, it's wonderful. And it's not awkward for the people who meet me because as I say, the person I am on the show is who I am. Obviously, it is the best version of me, right? I am the best version of the myself <laughs> right. on the show. Um, and sometimes I'm in traffic and I'm honking, you know, I'm, I'm also, I can also get, you know, irritable. But, you know, generally like that, that, that person who I am on the show is who I always try to be, um, you know, and, and, and try to live. And so I feel like people are 
feel comfortable when when they meet me. Um, and I I've gotten I've gotten much better at just kind of accepting that and understanding that people because they have that connection to me through the show, um, they they want to talk, they want to interact and, and engage. And um, and I really appreciate it. It is really meaningful, you know, um, and and as an introvert, a natural introvert, sometimes it can be hard because it does require a lot of energy um, to be there for for everybody who, who who needs me to be there for them or who just wants to engage in some some way. But um, but I've but over time, it's gotten it's gotten, you know, it's 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 a joyful thing. I mean, it's a it's a I feel very fortunate to be able to meet people and to have that kind of impact on people. So. So, yeah, it's it is what well, I, it is. It comes with the territory. Well, that's part of the reason I asked the question. The audience who listen to the show, watch our show, um, they are creators and entrepreneurs. And I always find it fascinating, the meta aspect of writing a book about entrepreneurialism or entrepreneurship when you're building something and, and you are building something in the process of writing about the process of building things. And if you layer a third layer of meta in there, it's now people are listening, uh, people who are aspiring to create the living and life that they want for themselves through um, their own creativity, through building businesses that they get to tap in for a moment to someone like you who have truly, I mean, you talked about being a, a, the high school paper and here you are, you know, a lifetime later continuing that passion. And so the question specifically is, was this passion always obvious to you? Were you directed towards it? I, I, I recognize that you had the news around as a, as a family. Um, but is this an area of passion for you and how do you, what role do you think that that passion has played in your success? I think that the passion that I had evolved. So the passion for writing and for being able to meet people really very quickly turned into a passion for listening. You know, listening is, it's one of those things that I never thought about until later on in life when I um, when I started to interrogate what I do and, and, and how I do it. And listening is actually an, an active skill. Active listening is a skill. To listen well is, it's like, it's like developing any skill. You know, it's, we, we, most of us aren't naturally good listeners, but if you can really begin to try and listen to somebody's story, what you discover is that most of the time people have pretty amazing stories. And for me, you know, when I started out as a journalist in college and then after college, um, just trying to get any gig I could, any, any writing gig, I was always just attracted to individual stories. One of the earliest stories I ever wrote was about, it was actually the first professional story I ever wrote. It was for the Washington City Paper, a free weekly in Washington, D.C. I wrote it in 1998. And it was the story about an actor, a woman named um, Suzanne Richard. I'll never forget her name. And she was an actor in a production of Pericles. She was born with a, a condition that um, 
that prevented her from growing taller than I think, you know, three, three feet or three and a half feet. She was in a wheelchair. Um, and, but she was an actor and she was playing a prostitute in a version of Pericles. And it was a very radical role, you know, putting somebody like her into that role. And for me, it was an opportunity to tell her story, you know, her life story, because her life story was so interesting. And that's really what what's motivated me. You know, I, I was a foreign correspondent. I covered wars. Um, I was never motivated by the bang, bang stuff, which I saw a lot of. I was not an adrenaline, adrenaline junkie. I was not. I didn't live for wars. Um, I had to cover them. I did. But I, I and I never lived for the day to day quotidian news cycle. Like today, this happened today, this happened today, tomorrow that it was always about the feature stories about people. Um, that's really where I felt I could contribute to our listeners when I was a reporter. You know, I, I could contribute the way I could make a contribution to the world is if I told people stories that would enable other people hearing those stories to understand that person and their circumstances and maybe to have empathy for them. That really has driven the passion for what I do to this day because I try to approach every interview I do with empathy in the hopes that the person who I'm interviewing will be generous in their openness and with the understanding that human lives are complicated. We are a complicated species. There is not a single human who has had a perfect life and who has lived a perfect life. And what I try to do on the show today is to offer up a 360 degree perspective of a person um, in order for our audience to understand that that person is not that different from them. And so it's it's like a full circle, you know, er, that that idea of storytelling and building empathy have really, you know, driven what I do. I don't think I would have defined it that way 10 or 20 years ago because I hadn't really thought it through. But I, I've come to understand that that's really what what has what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, it's it's what makes me excited about what I do. I love that comment about listening. And it seems obvious, but still very important, but obvious if you're a if you have the notepad in your hand and you are a journalist, you're listening to, you know, the the quote, you're trying to find the quote for the story, the centerpiece, the heartbeat. I'm curious what you've learned through listening and what you might um, extract and at the risk of uh, being blunt, give advice of what you've learned around listening. Because I have a, a strange feeling that it's not just valuable to journalism, but it's valuable in life. And I'm wondering if you can give us some advice. You know, I have, I, I, I'll say that I have learned from listening and I continue to learn from listening. So, and I learn as I watch how others listen too. Um, I, I interviewed a man named Eugene Peterson many, many years ago when I was the host of All Things Considered. And he was a Christian pastor. I am not religious, I'm not a believer, but I love talking to religious people um, and find oftentimes that there's a lot of wisdom that they can share. And 
I remember interviewing him and asking him about grief because ministers are often grief counselors. And I said, what do you do? And I think I interviewed him after a very traumatic, I interviewed him after a very traumatic shooting. I believe it was the shooting in, in, in Colorado, in Aurora. And I asked him, I said, when, when members of your community grieve and they need you there, what do you say to them? What do you say to them when they, when they're grieving and they're talking to you? What do you, how do you respond? And he said, I sit with them in silence. I sit with them in silence. I listen to them, but often I don't say anything back. I just acknowledge what they're saying. And that the, the, the power of listening and acknowledging without responding is enormous, you know, and I, I, I've, I don't do this consciously in interviews, but I do it in interviews because people want to be acknowledged. You know, I've had, I think a lot of people in, in the United States have had the opportunity to have really powerful, difficult, intense conversations over the last many months around race and equity. And those some of those conversations I've been able to have have been so powerful and meaningful. And so much of that is because I've had an opportunity to listen um, and to acknowledge the words that are coming out of somebody else's mouth, you know, which carry enormous meaning. And, and that's really what I think the, the sort of the first step in, in being an active listener is taking it in and really trying to understand and trying to acknowledge the meaning of the words that the person you're, you're communicating with is using. Um, that's, that's, I mean, that for me is really one of the most powerful lessons that I have learned. Um, and, and I hate to use the word tools because I don't do it actively, but I think tools that I use as an interviewer, um, which is sometimes just just listening without responding. I, I think of creativity as a capital C that so many, it's not just, you know, art certainly is a subset of creativity, but I think of what you do is wildly creative. And if your craft is listening, what I, I'm hearing you say is it's like a masterclass in how to um, connect and how to be empathetic and, for those out there who both want to master any craft and specifically those people who want to master the craft of listening and connecting and empathizing, how have you gotten so good at this? It, <laughs> wow. I, I don't think that I, and I, I'm not saying this to be falsely modest. I don't think I have any, any inherent gifts or talents. I think there were a few things that happened in my career that gave me, some tools like, look, I was a, a foreign correspondent for six years. I covered stories in, in, in 50 countries. I was able to cover wars. I was able to really immerse myself in many different cultures. Um, I had to read a lot of books about the different countries from where I reported to begin to understand them. I met a lot of people. So there are a lot of cultural references that I've absorbed over time, which I feel very fortunate because 
I can kind of, you know, grab the, those, 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 you know, sort of disparate bits of information in my mind and use them to connect with people. I, I had an interview once with um, Rita Ora. She's a pop singer. I did a show with Spotify called The Rewind. Um, I, uh, I was basically, I would interview pop singers. And Rita Ora is a huge pop star from the United Kingdom. And she got on the uh, interview and I started to talk to her about her, her background. She is a Kosovar Albanian. And I spent a lot of time in Kosovo as a reporter. I know the country very well. I know, and I, and, and she, her parents took her out of Kosovo in 1997 or 1998. And the first 10 minutes where she was just, her mind was blown because as a pop singer, most of the interviews she, she does are with music journalists. And it's very unlikely that those music journalists spent time in Kosovo or, or, or knew about the war. Not, not that they're uninformed, but that's just not what th they would have done. That's not their area of expertise. And that really created a, a connection between us. And so I have that s through experience, but really the rest of it is, is like shooting free throws. You know, I have stood at the free throw line for 25 years. And for the first five years, I didn't make a basket. They just kept hitting the rim or they were air balls. And then the second five years, I started to make a few baskets. And now, you know, you know, in year 23 of doing this, I sink more of them. Um, it really is, it's, it's a practice, you know, and, and I try and, and get better at it every time I interview somebody. And sometimes, you know, I do interviews where I don't feel like I, I really was able to penetrate that person's soul. I wasn't able to do it. It just wasn't possible for me to do it. Um, and I, and I try to reflect on it to, to figure out what, what happened, where, where, where do we miss, where was that connection missing? Because connection is really important. I mean, to, and you can see this in, in like, for, for example, Oprah Winfrey, who's a master interviewer, she knows how to connect with the people she's interviewing. And it's why, they're they're often very deep conversations because she finds those points of connection and um and so all of the things i do are not they're not gifts yes i am good at what i do but i'm good at what i do because i was really bad at what i do for a long time <laughs> this this is such a profound simple and yet profound concept that is a thread throughout the show the the best in the world across any endeavor there's this, uh, at first there's a passion a genuine curiosity and joy for that thing. And then there's repetition and reflection and repetition and reflection. And so for those listening at home, whether your passion is to be a, a world-class reporter or host or, you know, painter, entrepreneur or anything like I just, I love that you validated this from an, yet another, you know, we haven't had many hosts on the hosts of other shows on our show. And um, I just think that that is a fascinating thread that transcends any discipline and any time in history, the most curious, you know, energetic and, and it takes energy to do this. You know, you've just talked about, you stood at the free throw for, you didn't say five weeks or even 25 weeks. You said 25 five years, years. Yes. <laughs> 25 years. Uh, well, thanks for retracing a little bit of your your passion and history i want to shift gears now and talk a little bit more directly about the book um one of the things that i admired about your book 
um, is that it doesn't, most business books or books that, that, um, share stories of entrepreneurs are, um, they just pull out the shiny bits. And I think there's that, uh, a connection, a hook back to something you said just a few moments ago around, I like to, I think you said you like to tell the 360 degree story. Yeah. And a book that says, take this perfect thing, A, and move it to perfect spot B, C, and D, and then you have an excellent outcome. And, you know, my experience is like, okay, you're an entrepreneur. You have to cut off which one of your hands, which one would you like to cut right, off? Right. <laughs> which, are, which is sort of miserable. And and so for those folks at home, uh, how I built this, this book that Guy has shared with us, modeled after his show, um, it really does a phenomenal job of uh of telling the 360 degree story and yet i want to couch it in i'm a i'm a big um i like format and structure and you structured the book in a very you know meaningful and specific way as you mentioned earlier with an arc so i'm wondering if you could orient us um pretending like i'm here yeah. holding the book so i don't count but orient the the listener or watcher who doesn't yet have the book in their hand um why you organized it that way. And then we can go a little bit deeper on a couple of the subjects. You know, um, did you ever read any Joseph Campbell in college? Oh, movie? Cor- oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I reread it. I wrote a book in September and of last year and I referenced it many times because I was trying to emulate so many of the best parts of it and what I learned and failed probably miserably, but it's an ama- amazing, amazing, amazing. Course. Right. And, and he inspired George Lucas um, to create star Wars and, and basically right. The idea is, he identified a, a common narrative arc or series of, of, of archetypes in classic narratives, whether it's Gilgamesh or the Odyssey or the Bible. And while I don't know if Joseph Campbell would roll over in his grave to know that my entrepreneurial show is inspired <laughs> by him, um, I hope he wouldn't. Um, it is. It is because I think I see these stories as heroes' journeys. Um, there are you know, there are moments where the, the hero has to slay a dragon or almost gets defeated by the dragon and falls into an abyss and comes out, you know, and finds a mentor. And 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 all of those elements are are found in in stories of entrepreneurs and brands building building something with meaning. And I wanted to organize the book that way. That's why, you know, I've got the three sort of sections, the call it starts with the call, because that's, you know, that that really comes from the idea that Joseph Campbell codified. You know, there's a call. Um, for some people, it's a calling. But there's a voice that says, you must do this. You know, this is the thing you were meant to do. Now go on your journey. And the book is designed to be a journey. It's just told through, uh, you know, hundreds of different entrepreneurs and their stories, um, but really designed to impart their wisdom and their experience through the different segments and chapters of, of the hero's journey. Uh, just to make a point of connection between us, my, my book is called Creative Calling. And the calling that you reference in the beginning and the call is, uh, you know, is part of the reason I put that in the title of uh, my book about the it's same thing. It's about this journey and a process. And uh, I want to read a line from uh, the opening um, just to ground the folks who are listening and watching right now around how appropriate this is, because the, this, I think it epitomizes the audience here. It says entrepreneurship isn't very natural. It defies many of our most human instincts, our desire for security, our fear of crazy risks, our tendency to go with the flow and not make too many waves. 
As much as we think of ourselves as unique individuals, we also like to fit in and be chosen by those who fit in and were chosen before us. And yet the entrepreneur, the creator, if you will, is there is a part of us that rebels that is unwilling to accept the status quo. And I think as a Nietzsche quote, uh, an artist should never tolerate reality. And so I'm wondering, they're clearly, you're, you, what part of you do you see in this entrepreneur, the journey that you wrote about? I am naturally risk averse. You know, it's why, I mean, I grew up with my watching my mom and dad struggle to start a business. And eventually they, they, they did create a sustainable business, but it was a lot of work and there were a lot of risks involved. And I was attracted to doing the, the, the precise opposite, which was to find, you know, stable employment. I did then go become a war correspondent un, <laughs> unintentionally. It just happened because I was overseas. In the name of safety and security, yes. right? <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, I, I'm sort of a hybrid between a risk taker and, 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 and being risk averse. But I wouldn't say that, um, I wouldn't say that taking big risks comes easy to me. I had to learn that over time. I had to learn how to take big risks and how to understand that with risks, big and small, there is a huge potential for failure, you know? And it, it really, for me, I mean, the biggest risks that, that I've taken in my career and in my life and, you know, in, in starting the show and I've got, you know, a production company and, and I have another one where I, I make children's programs. Um, I mean, all of these ventures are risky at, you know, at a certain level. But what I find is that, you know, um, we are, we, I mean, as I wrote in the book, like we are sort of preternaturally inclined to avoid risk. I mean, that's a survival tactic of our species. But at the same time, without risk, we don't grow. We don't, we don't move forward. And I think it took me, it took me quite a while to come to that realization. It probably really only happened to me in my, you know, my sort of mid thirties, where I started to understand that if I wanted to do something that I cared about really um, with meaning that I could shape and design, um, I would have to start taking risks. Um, and, and I do, but I will say that, you know, I try to like, I think many people mitigate those risks. You know, I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't want to take a risk that would put my, my children or my family in danger. You know, I wouldn't want to take a risk that would, um, you know, that would, um, you know, that, that would result in a, in, in collapse. Right. But at the same time, without taking risks, you're never going to, you're never going to see, I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but you're never going to reap the rewards of, of that risk. Well, that's one of the things that has been a thread in this show is the belief that the entrepreneur has to go all in or the cultural meme, if you will. And yet, if you study it, you look and, you know, Richard Branson is very famous for this. He told this to my face. He's an investor in Creative Live and has been a mentor to me. He said, mitigate the downside. And I'm wondering if, you know, that is a sort of a little nugget of wisdom that I think is uncommonly 
or maybe inaccurately believed that all entrepreneurs, yeah. yeah, of course you have to work hard and take risks, but the best ones, the ones that are successful in a serial fashion, they are constantly sort of mitigating the downside. Every time. Yeah. And if we use that as an example, I'm wondering in your own words, what are some other really consistent themes that you saw and that you've put into the book across the hundreds of interviews you've done with many of the most successful and fulfilled entrepreneurs of our era? Well, one of them, as you pointed out, is, is the mitigation of risk. You know, we have this 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 um, myth of entrepreneurs as these kamikazes who jump out of airplanes without parachutes. And the reality is um, the vast majority of people I've had on the show mitigate those risks. They have a, a plan B. They have a fallback plan. It doesn't mean that that they aren't committed to their main idea or their goal, or it doesn't mean that they don't believe it's going to work. It just means that they understand that there's a potential for it not to work and that it's probably a good idea to have a backup plan. So whether it's Seth Goldman, who founded Honest Tea and left his safe, comfortable job in finance to start that company, um, he knew when he did that, that if it failed, he could go back to the finance firm. Or Jim Cook, who was a consultant for Boston Consulting Group, who started Sam Adams Beer. He knew that if it failed, he could always go back into consulting. So there was, there were plan Bs involved. And I think that that is a really important um, thing to, to remember. But I think when it comes to actually a quality, like a, a, the, a, a quality that every single one of these entrepreneurs has in common, it's actually really, really simple. I mean, the, you know, because they're all, I mean, with varying degrees, they're all, all the 300 entrepreneurs I've interviewed over, over the past few years are optimistic. Um, they believe in their idea. They're persistent. They're relentless in pursuit of their goal. Um, they're really hard workers. And, and to varying degrees, those apply to most of them, right? Those are predictable. The thing that I've, I've actually noticed um, across the board that, that every single entrepreneur has, some of them have it naturally, most of them have developed it, is the ability to withstand rejection. So think about uh, Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx. She spent the first three years of her career selling fax machines door to door. Um, Tope Awatana uh, Topa Awatana, who started a company called Calendly, he spent his his you know when he was a young man selling ADT monitoring systems door to door. Both of these entrepreneurs knocked on doors and had most of those doors slammed in their face. And most of the time, people said, "Not interested, no soliciting, get off my property." But that developed a resilience over time, the ability to understand that eventually, you know, someone is going to say yes, and don't take those no's personally. I think we are all inclined to seek out validation and yes is validation. But too much yes, is sometimes not is often not helpful. We need to hear the no's we need to have we need to have that pushback because it forces us to sharpen our pitch or sharpen our idea, or make a stronger case or just keep moving on. And and I think that if you know, if you can figure out a way to expose yourself to rejection in a meaningful way, you can really learn how to become a successful entrepreneur. Many of the people who've been on How I Built This were salespeople. They went door to door. They had to deal with rejection after rejection. And by the way, 
it's a common trait among Mormons. In Mormon, many 18-year-old Mormons go on a two-year mission. And we've had several Mormon entrepreneurs on the show, David Neeleman of JetBlue and um, uh, 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 David Smith of Cotopaxi and Joel Clark of Kodiak Cakes. They go on two-year missions when they're 18. They're sent with no money. They got to figure it out on their own. They've got to use a bicycle to go all around rural Brazil or you know Australia, wherever they are. They got to knock on a thousand doors with the Book of Mormon, trying to convince people to to join the flock. Okay, it's it's basically a form of entrepreneurship, and 995 doors slam in their face, and they have to be polite, and gracious, and poised, and and if you know Mormon, the chances. I mean, I don't. I hate to stereotype, but you know that's part of the culture to be polite and gracious and poised, and they come back from those two year missions. Many of those young people, they're 20, they are better equipped to take on life than their counterparts, their 20-year-old counterparts who haven't done a mission or some kind of public service or have, you know, Peace Corps or something like that. They are ready to take on the world. And, and, and in the case of Joel Clark, who founded Kodiak Cakes, he came back from his mission and he was like, I'll go door-to-door selling pancake mix. No problem. Because he'd already had two years of you know, most people saying, no, not interested. But he knew that eventually enough people would say, yeah, I am interested. And that, and that's really what he was after. So I think rejection, the ability to withstand rejection is the absolute key that connects almost everybody I've ever had on how I built this. I wanted to spell a handful of, uh, of other myths and what I think are things that are harmful to the notion of creativity and entrepreneurship in our culture. And one of them, you know, we've already disposed of. Uh, another is funding. And uh, there's a point in the book where you talk to um, Toby Lucky, and he's a dear friend as his counterpart is COO Harley Finkelstein. And in his, I think the words were something like, I just didn't, uh, you know, anything that's built on that sort of business model was something I couldn't trust. And so what could you tell us to dispel the miss, the myth of requiring funding for becoming an entrepreneur? I mean, if you are trying to create the Peloton bike, it's pretty hard to do it unless you are independently wealthy. And John Foley wasn't. He knew he could not manufacture at scale or even a prototype of that very expensive piece of machinery without some funding. But he still went to 400 people before he got enough seed money to start that company. Now, the reality is most of the time you can start a business um, in a relative in a relatively small simple way and use the cash flow to slowly and gradually build it up. But as you know, Chase, I mean, especially in Silicon Valley and 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 founders coming out of business schools, they want to scale quickly and they look for funding quickly. I think that the the myth about funding is that it's um, is that some people have unlimited access to it and 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 some people have no access to it. And that is partially true. Right in the sense that there are some people who, you know, if you go to Harvard Business School, you have a network of people you can tap into. 
Um, but if you're Toby Ledkey of Shopify, um, he didn't have a, a network that he could tap into. It started with his girlfriend, his then girlfriend, now wife. It started with his, her parents asking them to lend him a little bit of money. They didn't have a whole lot, but they, they lent him a little bit of money. And then he was in Ottawa and they happened to know some people in Ottawa and he asked them to introduce him to them. In the case of, you know, of, of, of many, many entrepreneurs who've been on the show, they sort of start with the people they know. It's like, do I know this person from my church or from my community? Or, hey, I have this, I know a friend of a friend's, you know, uncle works at this company or is, has access to a little bit of money. And they kind of gradually um, sort of um, uh, can sort of work out, um, begin, I, I sort of, the concept I use is concentric circles. They begin with the circles closest to them and then they, they widen that circle out until they are able to amass a little bit of capital. And, and look, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about millions of dollars. I mean, obviously it depends on what you want to start. But, um, you know, there are many, many businesses that most businesses, in fact, small businesses um, and, and endeavors and enterprises are started with very little capital um, and kind of figure it out from there. And, and some of the most successful companies today are pretty much wholly owned by the founders because they couldn't find funding. I mean, Swell Bottles, Sarah Kaus started that company, she could not get funding for her business. There was no interest. Well, I mean, what a what a blessing in disguise because she owns 100% of that company and it's a hugely successful company. So, um, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who say, don't go out and seek funding under any circumstances, but I am somebody who says, do everything you can to try and make it work as long as you can with what you have. Um, I mean, Tope Awatana of Calendly was a salesman for software companies and he sold and sold and sold and just just stashed his cash until the time came for him to develop a wireframe for Calendly and he he had $50,000 that he saved over 10 years and he used that to take the plunge and and to put out this product bootstrap as you exactly. articulate that's yeah. the the term and if Cuban were here sitting with us, you know, he blurbed your book, he's been on the show, friend, he would say that's the first failure in your business, or maybe not the first, but a failure if you're if you if you create a business that has to be funded by someone else. Now exactly. I think you wisely point out, guy, that you're you know, you're not, if you're gonna produce three thousand uh digitally connected electric electronic yeah. bikes like a Peloton, you're not doing that out of your savings right. account, probably. But I just think it's interesting that you know, I get so many petitions from entrepreneurs and I'm wondering if this was a common thread in, in your interviews, this, this automatically ran to funding. Now let's take Silicon Valley out of it because that is a business model, sure. hyper growth model. You know, if you, if you're talking to Reed Hoffman, he'd be talking about blitzscaling and, you know, Reed and Greylock are an investor in creative live. I know all about that. Know, know that. I think it's really important to underscore a point you just said that may have slipped by, which is most businesses don't. Most businesses, you know, it's Silicon Valley, um, you know, it had its heyday, it had its time in the sun, but even all of those moments or times or those companies, that was in a very specific, that's a business model in itself. And so I'm wondering if you can articulate, having talked to so many people, 
you know, what their experiences were, or rather what your experience of learning from them about how you, you know, whether you have to be based in a hot spot or not. So I don't believe so at all. I mean, I think that, and I increasingly, there are a lot of institutional and family investors and foundations in cities all over the country. You know, if you go to St. Louis or Chicago, there are, I mean, you know, um, uh, Gordon Siegel, the founder of Crate and Barrel. I mean, he's in Chicago. He's constantly looking for Chicago-based entrepreneurs to invest in. Jack Dorsey does invest in, in, in St. Louis-based entrepreneurs. There are a lot of um, you don't have to be in New York or San Francisco anymore. Um, there's no qu question about it. But the other other side to it is that it obviously depends on the business and the product that you want to create. Some products just require a lot of upfront capital, um, which is in part why on how I built this, I really tend to focus on consumer products that that my hope is that our listeners can realistically think, you know, I can, I can do that. I can make something like that. Like, that's why we do a lot of food. I mean, you think about Stacy's pita chips, right? This was <laughs> Stacy Madison and her boyfriend had a pita roll-up cart. They bought a used hot dog cart in Boston, and they made roll-up pita sandwiches on Boston Common in near downtown crossing in, in downtown Boston. And they served a lunchtime crowd. And at the end of the day, they had stacks of pita left and they used to throw them away. And one day they were like, she was like, let's just toast these and cut them up and toast them and make like chips. And they started handing them out to people who would wait for the sandwiches for free. They sprinkled cinnamon and sugar on them or Parmesan. And, and soon people were coming and saying, hey, I, can I buy these pita chips? And they were like, all right. I guess so. And they started putting them in baggies with twist ties and selling them for a dollar. And then eventually people started coming just for the chips. They didn't want the pita sandwiches. Well, that company sold to, to, to PepsiCo for $250 million. I mean, she made pita chips. You know, there was no, there were no investors. There was no, there was no pitch deck, you know, um, Kathleen King of Tate's cookies. I mean, she baked cookies, really great cookies. That company was bought by Mondelez for half a billion dollars. Um, you know, two years ago, um, Angie's Boom Chicka Pop sold for $220 million to Cargill. I mean, they made kettle corn in their backyard in Minnesota and sold it on cold days and then eventually started to sell it in the parking lot of Minnesota Vikings games, just set up a little tent. You know what I mean? I love those stories because those feel very real and very within the realm of possibility. Not everybody is, uh, is able to make Stripe. You know, the Collison brothers are geniuses, certifiably like one, they're Irish kids. And at age 16, one went to Harvard and the other one went to MIT. And then they coded and programmed Stripe when they were like 20. You know, not everybody can do that. And we did that story in the show and it's a great story. But um, I, I tend to focus on on products and companies that seem within the realm of possibility and also that don't require the 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 VC pitch and the agony of trying to convince, you know, investors why this is worth their time. Um, because I feel like that is, those are stories that people can relate to in a much more intimate and meaningful way. To that same point, as I, I mentioned earlier, how I hate reading books that paint this rosy picture of if you start with perfect thing A, and then you, you know, take these perfect steps, then you end up with 
you know, one of my favorite books is for entrepreneurs is the hard thing about hard things by sure, Dan Horowitz. Then, yep. Sure. Because as a founder of a venture back, you know, CEO of a venture back company and founder, like none of the stuff that was happening to me was in any of these books. And I'm like, right. how to fire your co-founder or how to like get rid of an investor or how yeah. to tell your company you're running out of money. Those are the titles of chapters in, in his book. And yeah. I, I love that you've done such a great job of how in how I built this of sharing that 360 degree point of view. And in service of that, again, I'm looking for some common threads here. What were some common horror stories that you heard from many of these folks? I mean, um, there's always the, you know, the challenge of co-founders, right? Um, and, and there are examples of co-founders who do fall out of love, who, who have to figure out how to, um, uh, you know, how to separate. Um, and, you know, a classic example of this is a story of Bonobos, um, Andy Dunn and Brian Spaley's co-founder, um, really was Brian's idea um, but ultimately, these two co-founders had to decide which one was going to stay, um, and it really tore the company apart. I mean, it almost almost tore it apart. Um, and eventually, Brian left, and Andy continued to run the company. Um, and I think that is that's something that has happened that happens quite a bit. You know, we we've also had some really interesting and important, I think, intimate conversations with I've had with with founders where. They did survive that crucible, and they survived it by being very intentional about it and by looking for help. The founders, the co-founders of Reddit, even even Adam Lowry and Eric Ryan, who started uh, Method, you know, they had they had a lot of challenges that they had to work through, and they talked talked about it. There were um, co-founders who divorced. Um, you know, Susan Griffin Black and 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 her husband Brad were married, started EO Products, the the, the company that makes these wonderful natural home remedies and um, essential oils and soaps. And um, they divorced, they had to, they, they, their marriage collapsed and they decided to continue to be business partners and run that company today, their best of friends. I mean, it's a remarkable story, um, but certainly was, you know, incredibly difficult at the time um, to, to, to kind of navigate and to, to figure out. But look, the, the reality is every business is going to have some kind of horror story at some point. There's going to be, a moment or many moments um, where they will fall into a crisis or a crucible and it can happen tomorrow. I mean, you know, you think about a company like Airbnb, Airbnb at the beginning of this year was valued at $44 billion. Um, all of a sudden COVID-19 hits in a two week period, their business drops 80%, 80%. I mean, they had to fire a quarter of their workforce. Um, I talked to Brian Chesky about this recently. That, the most recent episode of the podcast, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah. that is, and, 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 you know, you could just hear the pain in his voice. You know, this is a, a company that he and two friends started in an apartment in San Francisco and he's got to lay it, let go of a quarter of people he knows. It's the hardest thing that he he's had to do in his professional life. Um, and and you would think that they're on top of the world. So, you know, crisis is inevitable. It is going to happen. Um, and the key is 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 which is how businesses and how these leaders 
respond and deal with them. You know, in, in Brian Chesky's case, I, I would recommend everybody read the, the open letter he wrote to his employees because it is one of the most transparent and, and empathetic and just um, big-hearted letters I've ever seen a, a CEO write to their employees. Um, it's, it's very, very real. And I would hope, and I think that, that the people who, who unfortunately had to, had to be let go, who read that letter probably really appreciated it. Yeah. The, that thread, I think you nailed it in saying it's not if it's when, you know, at every, at, for every business. And that's part of what I'm hoping to remind people who see entrepreneurship as this shiny thing that is very <laughs> yeah. popular and sexy right. and, you know, pop cultures, um, glorified it in many ways. And I want to thank you as, a, as an entrepreneur and a creator myself for telling the 360 degree story. And, and that's part of what I found so fascinating and beautiful about the book. I mean, to have chapters titled the art of the pivot when catastrophe strikes, <laughs> um, uh, you already mentioned the crucible that's somewhere in here. I remember what, what, what chapter that one was, but, um, I, th I think there, there's, there's so much reality and empathy in your willingness to put that in a book. Um, did, was that a part that was hard for entrepreneurs to share with you? Did you observe that? Or did you find that that was a, you know, you, you shared some personal qualities you know, some of this is about companies, right? Where I'm trying to connect the emotion and the actual, the attribute of the human yeah. versus the company. It's hard for a company to do X, Y, or Z, or companies will have hard things happen. But I want to just peel that layer one back and say, all right, what about the humans? Yeah. You mentioned resilience early on. Anything else in dealing with these catastrophes? And if the company is experiencing that, what about the individual humans? What was, what are the attributes and what were some of the, what, what did you observe? Was it empathy, connection, resilience, all these things, some of them, none of them help me understand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all of those things. And, and it's, you know, I, you know, I look to tease out those moments of, of, of their lives when they're lying on the bathroom floor, crying in the fetal position, right? Because that's when somebody is at their most raw and um, most vulnerable. And, you know, we had, I, I had a, a wonderful episode of the show about Eventbrite. Eventbrite with Julia Hart. She's a, she co-founded it with her husband and is a CEO of the company and it was doing really well. They went public. They had some challenges with their IPO, but, you know, on track to, to, to do okay. And then COVID hits. Well, their whole business model is live events. You know, she came back on the show um, and joined me for an update and was just, was very, very honest about the challenges they're facing and about how they are trying to navigate this very challenging landscape. You know, they've got, she has employees. She has a responsibility to those employees. She has, um, a responsibility to keep her business afloat. And that's really weighing on her. Um, but I think that what, what what I have found is that, like in the case of Julia Hartz um, and other leaders who face real crises, 
Jenny Britton Bauer of Jenny's Ice Cream when Listeria was founded in their ice cream was found in their ice cream you know eight years ago they had to recall all of their ice cream they were losing two hundred thousand dollars a day which was a lot of money for that company uh, and it would still be today the the key is transparency and um, and openness and really asking questions and seeking out feedback and advice from the people around you. I mean, you know, a lot of the founders are lucky to have partners in their lives or business partners who who they can lean on to, which which is sometimes crucial, oftentimes crucial. Um, but I think on an individual level, when, you know, when it's, if it's Jenny and, and the ice cream, or if it's Julia and, you know, Eventbrite or Brian and, and uh, you know, Airbnb and, and layoffs, the key really is transparency. It's it's really one of the most, I think one of the most effective ways that I've seen leaders deal with crises to just, to just lay it out there and just say, this is hard. I don't, I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I'm, I'm trying to work to get answers and I need your help. Um, and that to me is also the mark of a really, of a really good leader. When you have interviewed 300 people for this project, uh, at some point, maybe in the 200s, you start saying, okay, I think I've heard most of this stuff because there's a lot of, there's so much individuality and nuance between the companies and the products and the funding and the, all those things. But there, there's probably some things that surprised you between companies 200 and 299. I'm wondering in all of your research, what surprised you the most about creators and the entrepreneurs in, in your stories? I'm surprised. I'm surprised every in every interview at some point about something, about some decision that was taken or some, I mean, I know a lot about the person. I've done a lot of research, but um, I always learn a lot of new things in every interview I do. And, and I, I try to design it that way. I try to trigger memories in people. I and mean, I think the, the most sort of surprising things that, you know, that, that happen in, in businesses and in enterprises and in, in coming up with ideas is the kind of the serendipitous things that happen, you know, the, um, just the small shifts that happen that actually have enormous transformational impacts. You know, the, the store, I mean, the example is Airbnb. I mean, they, they, they weren't getting any traction in 2009, you know, um, and one of their, one of their advisors said, a mentor said, your, the photos on the site suck. Why don't you go to New York and like help like people who are booking out their places, take better photos. And it was that small pivot, that small, tiny, you know, nudge. There's a book called nudge. It's from small, tiny shift that really transformed the business. It was it was photographs or Instagram, you know, it was like they had this Kevin Systrom ha had this check and, and, and Mike Krieger had a check in app called Bourbon and and it really wasn't getting any traction. And on vacation, Kevin's girlfriend, now wife, you know, said, I really wish there was like an app, like a, a really great app like uh, that can help me take better photos because my photos suck. 
And that was like a a light bulb moment. He's like, wow, that's the thing. Because they had a, a photograph, they had a a, a photo sharing um, feature on Bourbon. But 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 then he realized, well, what if we can make everybody into a great photographer? You know, obviously, trans transform Bourbon completely changed that business. And so, to me, those are the most surprising things. That oftentimes it's serendipity. It's you know, and serendipity isn't just a series of, of random acts. It's it's when your eyes are open and you're actually looking around and interrogating what you do that those serendipitous moments of feedback and insight come to you. Brilliant. Guy, we're uh, just about at time and I wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show and congratulate you, not just on your all of your audio endeavors, which are... Um, the best out there and you're a master and it's fun to watch and listen to anyone who's mastered anything, but specifically you who mastered storytelling and helping others do that. And by extension, the book, it's just masterful. Um, your curation of the guests and as an entrepreneur and a creator myself, I've just found myself nodding and yesing and underlining and uh, dog earing uh, pages the whole time. So um, for anyone out there in our community, if uh, you consider yourself a creator and entrepreneur, it's a must must have. And um, I would love to, before we let you go, get a little, some coordinates on where's the best place or where you would like to funnel this community's attention. Of course, the book available at your local bookshops or Amazon, I think it comes out the 15th of September. Is that right? Maybe you can 15th, just guide us. Yep. Comes out the 15th of September. And if you pre-order it or if you order it before the 30th, we have signed book plates for free uh, and while supplies last as they say and you can you can sign up for a, a free book plate that goes into the book at my website which is guyraz.com g-u-y-r-a-z.com amazing thank you so much been a pleasure having you on the show and we look forward to having you back again at some point and until Anytime. then everybody out there in the world uh, please go uh, pay a lot of attention to guy and all his recent work and in the meantime, I bid you adieu. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds, tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.